if you would again take out your Bibles. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Our New Testament reading is verses 3 through 14. Uh, but our sermon text, which we will be focused on, will be uh, verses 7 through 12. And again, as I've mentioned before, um, verse, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek. And it really is dealing with each person of the Trinity and his work in our salvation. So I'll start reading uh, chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 14. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, who has caused your word to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, and learn, and inwardly grow. O God, till deeply the soil of our heart. May we be comforted by your word. May we be confronted by your word. That we may embrace and hold fast to the hope of everlasting life given to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A university student in the 1970s had his car stolen while he was in class. A 1957 Chevrolet Nomad. The car was later recovered by the police and was sitting at the police impound yard. In order to take possession of his car, the young man needed to pay the impound fee of $100. 
But $100 was a lot of money for a poor college student in the 1970s. And he didn't have the money. The impound yard would not give him his car back without the $100. This was the ransom price for his prized Chevrolet. And so he went to his father, and he asked his father if he could borrow the $100, which was the required fee. Sadly, his father refused to lend him the money, and so the car was lost to him. He was unable to redeem his car. He could not afford the ransom price. Now, if you were a car lover, particularly of late 1950s Chevrolets, this story is tragic, but not as tragic as what it is intended to illustrate. You see, human beings outside of Christ are enslaved to their trespasses and sins. They are in need of redemption. There is a ransom price to pay for people found in bondage sin. The price required is one that you and I could not pay, as it would be a sacrifice in blood of infinite value. Unlike the college student's father who refused to help his son, we have a heavenly father who gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to set us free from sin and death, and to purchase for himself a people for his own possession. In fact, our Heavenly Father was overjoyed to do this. The Father was delighted to bless us with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places. It was out of his great love and for his glory that he chose a people to be his people in Christ. He's adopted us in Christ, and we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, which is of infinite value. And so this is what we are looking at today, under the heading of Redemption and the Son. As we continue in in our series in Ephesians, and the spiritual blessings from the heavenly places. Now, I mentioned uh, already earlier that that verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence in the original Greek. Now, verse 3 introduces the main theme. The blessings which the Christian has been blessed with from the heavenly places. And then there are three sections which focus on the work of each person of the Trinity. And then each section ends with a praise for God and for His glorious grace. Now last time, we looked at the first section, verses 3 through 6. This focuses on God the Father and how our identity as followers of Jesus in Him have been predestined, as, as we've been predestined, as we've been adopted as children of God by the Father. And the Father was pleased from all eternity to predestine some to be his children. He did this according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, next week, we will look at the work of the Holy Spirit who seals us with the guarantee, who seals us and is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. And so today we're looking at the middle section. And the redemptive work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, 
by his blood. Salvation, which God graciously lavishes us with as he unites us in Christ for the purpose of the praise of God. The purpose of God is to bring all subjects of redemption into one harmonious body. This purpose was first realized in the conversion of the Jewish Christians, but then now extends to the nations. And so starting in verse 7, we read that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, those who the Father had chosen, those who He had chosen for adoption, in the due course of time, redeemed through the blood of the Son. Now this word redemption has the idea of release or deliverance by the payment of a ransom. What Paul is talking about here is our being delivered from bondage, from from slavery to sin. You and I were enslaved to sin. We were held bondage, as it were. And we need to be set free. Christ came to redeem us. When Jesus redeems people, he actually saves them. Jesus did not pay the ransom so that maybe you might choose to follow after him. Our deliverance from bondage to sin is in no way a kind of self-salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Nor is it some sort of synergistic relationship where where Jesus does his part and and then we do our part. No, we are saved by something outside of ourselves. It is not based on our merit. It is not based on our choice. It is not based on our goodness. We are saved through the payment with blood, namely the blood of the Son of God. What Paul is talking about here in Ephesians is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Men and women, having been taken captive by sin, are made free through the redeeming work of Jesus because he paid the price. You see, all of humanity is a slave to sin. In order to be made free, payment must be made because men have transgressed God's law and failed to conform to God's standards. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 reminds us. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because man has sinned, not only in Adam our first head... But also because of our own personal sins, people are captive. Beloved, you have neighbors and friends and co-workers who are captive to their sin. They're slaves to sin. In some cases, they don't even know it. But God in his perfect holiness and justice demands perfect obedience. 
In order to satisfy God's perfect justice, payment must be made. But human beings cannot pay the price ourselves. Worse than the college student who didn't have the hundred dollars, sinners cannot atone for their sin. No sacrifice, no offering we could render would make full payment. But Christ, the Son of God, was born into the world to make the necessary, voluntary, substitutionary, and efficacious offering of Himself which fully satisfies the wrath of God. The writer of Hebrews, in chapter 9, in verses 11 and 12, put it this way, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Full satisfaction for sin was made by the perfect sacrifice, namely, the Son of God Himself. He is the perfect High Priest. He is the Beloved of the Father. The active and passive obedience of the Son, therefore, secures your redemption and my redemption. Jesus Christ was fully obedient to all the prescripts of the law. And he, was, he willingly laid down his life for his people. He bore all the sanctions imposed by the law for his people. And he did this in their place. Now this is important because, again, Jesus does not simply open the door to a possible salvation. He actually saves with his own blood. His blood paid the ransom price. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, what he meant is it is finished. He did the work. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, the work that Jesus had set out to accomplish at the cross was for the purpose of saving people from the wrath of God. In other words, God saved us from himself through his own blood as he took on flesh. This redemption which Christ purchased by his blood is an exhibition of, of, as it says in verse 7, of the riches of His grace. He's displaying the riches of His grace in this. Paul uses such descriptive words here. The the word riches is a a favorite of the Apostle. He uses it five different times, speaking of the riches of grace, the, the riches of His glory, the riches of wisdom, the riches of God's kindness, and the riches of Christ. These, these riches are over an overflowing abundance from God of His unmerited, inexhaustible, and freely accessible love through Jesus Christ. These riches 
then are part and parcel of God's spiritual blessings. Our redemption, which is deliverance on the grounds of complete satisfaction of divine justice, this is gracious. It is pure grace that God the Father gave God the Son to redeem people. Jesus Christ paid the debt that you, could, you and I could not pay. He did this at the cross. This is what saves us. And this was according to the riches, the abundant overflow of God's grace. Oh, the abundance of God's marvelous grace to sinners. So abundant is this grace that Paul says in verse 8, it is lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Such, such descriptions. This word lavished has the idea of being abundantly wealthy, giving, giving more than enough. My, my cup overflows. God's grace is, is super abounding. Our redemption is according to the superabounding, lavish riches of God's marvelous grace, which He freely and stupendously pours out. I'm running out of descriptors for you. Words cannot fully capture the reality of this situation. The greatness of God's superabounding and un unsparing grace which he, he lavishes upon us with all wisdom and insight. God's, God in His wisdom has communicated to us His wisdom and His prudence. God has given to us as part of this grace package, if you will, wisdom and discernment. We are called to walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5 tells us. And James 1, 5 reminds us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And so here's, here's the point. God in Christ has lavished us the riches of His grace. He has redeemed us and He has given us spiritual wisdom and discernment. Both of which we should be continually praying for more of. And God is pleased to give us these good gifts because we are His children who He delights in and He has bought through the price of the blood of Jesus. And so what is this wisdom and insight which is ours in Christ? Well, look at verse 9. This is the divine wisdom of the gospel, that is to say, the mystery of redemption which has been hidden for ages, but has now been revealed through his apostles and prophets of the Holy Spirit. The mystery of God's will has now, in Christ, been made known. Namely, that he would graciously, graciously redeem us by his blood and bring us into union with him. God has made known to the apostles the mystery of His will through Christ, and in turn, they have made it known to us through His Word. God set forth in Christ His overflowing grace, and He wants us to know of the riches that are ours in Him. He wants us to know about those things. 
because this mystery had been had formerly been unknown. The Old Testament saints, though they had glimpses, they did not understand what was to come. God's purposes had been concealed, but in Christ they've now been revealed. And so what exactly is the mystery? Well, if you read ahead to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, it gives us a clue. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ was for his people. But who is included as God's chosen people has now been expanded. Not only are the Jews God's people as the direct descendants of Abraham, but the Gentiles, those of the nations, now too are full members of God's people as well. It was in Christ that God chose his people and foreordained them to be full members of his family. And he did this according to the purpose of his will. And it is equally in Christ that he has gathered up all of the various and alienated parts of the world. In the fullness of time, Christ is uniting all things to himself. Every tribe and nation and people and language are to be united together as one body, to be the one kingdom of Christ. And so what Paul then is doing is he's pointing to a future hope that we have. He's pointing towards new heavens and the new earth, which is populated by regenerated people who are God's chosen people. Having made peace by his blood, breaking down the dividing wall, reconciling us to God. Christ, therefore, is reconciling all things to himself. From this short verse, we see that our union with Christ is rooted in our reconciliation, which has been purchased by him. Previously, there was alienation between God and man, but now there has been reconciliation through the blood of Christ. And because of this redeeming work, we are now partakers of an inheritance in union with him. But it should be noted This union we have with Christ, this is not one of subjection. We're not justified by Christ and then made slaves. This is what you would expect, you know, as Christ is the great king, you would expect a great king who's conquering a people to enslave them. That's not what he does. No, this this union is a union of reconciliation. What had been broken has now been renewed through the blood of Christ. The hostility has ended. The rebels have surrendered. Peace has been made through Christ. Who are the subjects of this reconciliation? Those who are the surrendering rebels who had previously been at war with God. It is those who are in Christ by faith. It is this group who has union with Christ. The reconciliation being highlighted is 
through Christ. The reconciliation being high, well, the reconciliation in, in Colossians, it talks about all things to God. The, re- the reconciliation being highlighted here in Ephesians is the reconciliation of humans to God and to one another. We are reconciled to God, but as we become a, the body of Christ, we are also reconciled to one another. God was pleased in the fullness of time, according to his own administration and will. He was pleased to unite all things in Christ, to gather them together as one. And so the mystery is that the Gentiles have full inclusion into these covenant promises. And that we have union with Christ in our redemption. We are made as one body and one people under one head who is the Savior. This was all part of God's plan with the purpose of His glory. This is to the glory of God. This union which we have in Christ, which is the case now for believers, also has a a future promise, a hope of inheritance. Verse 11. Christ, all who are in Him, will obtain an inheritance an inheritance which is, by the way, already ours. And note, it is in Him that we have obtained an inheritance. It is, it is because of our union with Christ that we receive the blessings of redemption, forgiveness of sin, spiritual insight and wisdom. But in addition to these, we also have the right to future glory. Christ Jesus, who is the beloved of God, the the Son of God, the the second person of the Godhead, who does all things well. The Father is pleased with the Son, and He is the heir of all things. All things belong to the Son. On account of our relationship to Christ, being in Him, being in union with Him, we too have the rights to all the blessings of salvation including future glory and inheritance in the kingdom of God. And these are things which are ours, which cannot be lost. And so the inheritance which is ours is given, in a sense, in two stages. Certain blessings are bestowed on us here and now, namely justification, adoption, sanctification, and the various blessings in this life. And there are other blessings which are realized in glory. In the new heavens and new earth, in our glorification. This inheritance that is ours in Christ was prepared before all time for us. In God's choosing of us as objects of salvation, He predestined us for an inheritance Paul says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Believers are God's chosen people who are claimed by him as his portion and as his heritage. God not only preordained people, but but also governs the universe according to the counsel of his will. We belong to God in Christ who has purchased and redeemed us and made us sons by adoption. Thus, we inherit the kingdom. What Paul is getting at here is that we will in Christ inherit the kingdom and glory 
which includes a, a renewed universe. Just as Israel inherited the promised land as a heritage, so will those who are in Christ be partakers of the heavenly inheritance which has been secured for them in Christ. And so we're not only partakers of the knowledge of redemption and the fact that Gentiles join in with Jews as fellow partakers, but we are actually heirs of its blessings. And beloved, this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. God has done all this, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Our having inherited and being heirs of the covenant promises leads to the praise of His divine majesty and excellence. Ultimately, the redemption of people and everything else connected with that is to the praise and glory of God. This is the reason, ultimately, for salvation, isn't it? It's for God's glory. Now, the, Paul actually makes an interesting statement. He says, so that we who are the first to hope, Now, the we who were the first to hope in Christ here actually refers to Jewish believers. Because it was the Jews who were the foundation members of the covenant community. This is why when Paul went to new places on his missionary journeys, he always went to the synagogue first. The Jews were the ones who were looking forward to the coming of Messiah. It was the Jews through whom God had first worked, calling Abraham out of Ur, bringing forth Isaac, choosing Jacob over his older brother Esau. The Old Testament is filled with God's dealings with the people of Israel. The Jewish believers in Christ, therefore, were the first fruits of the people of God in this new age which had been inaugurated in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was one of those Jewish believers. But then, notice that he includes Gentile believers in verse 13, with you also. So here's the point. Those who trust and rest in Jesus Christ have been predestined according to God's purposes to obtain an inheritance in Him in order that the Jewish believers who were the first fruits of salvation, the first to believe in Christ, might be to the praise and glory of God. And you also. In other words, that first generation of believers, those who had come from the Old Covenant into the New, were a kind, of, a kind of first jewel, if you will, in the Lord's crown of glory. The first in Christ to display the family likeness, which marks them out as children of God and heirs of the promises. Those first century Jewish believers were the first to magnify the glory of God and His salvation. And you and I, when we too heard the word of truth, we were enabled to do likewise. And so as stones in the new temple being fitted together, or as, as further jewels in this heavenly crown, we too join together with that first generation as the heavenly choir singing praises with one voice to our God and to our Savior. And this salvation, 
which God had planned by the counsel of His own gracious will, which He had worked out through the Jewish nation, and through the promised Messiah, when He had drawn people from all of the nations and had given them an inheritance as well. This was to the praise and glory and honor of the triune God. Salvation which God graciously lavishes upon us as He unites us in Christ is for the purpose of His praise and glory. The purpose of God is to bring all subjects of redemption into one body. This this purpose was first realized with the conversion of those first Jewish Christians, but then extended out all the nations. As we, as we come now to the end, I want you to see this. The Lord is not stingy. The Lord is not stingy. God was pleased to make a full payment in order to redeem you and I from bondage to sin. God is not stingy. God the Father was pleased to give God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus paid the bill that we could not pay. He has redeemed us from the pit. He has removed guilt and shame. This salvation is graciously and lavishly and superaboundingly bestowed upon us. This is very unlike the university student's father who refused to help his son. And by the way, earthly fathers fail their children regularly. But our our Heavenly Father does not fail. He would not refuse, but He graciously and joyously redeems His children. And through that redemption, you and I are united as a body in Christ for the purpose of the praise and glory of God. And what this means, what this means for you and I is that this redemption, as we, as we can comprehend the, the, the superabounding nature of this, what it ought to do is drive us to the very thing our Sunday school is about. To the very thing we're doing now should drive us to worship, to praise God for what He has done. We should be driven to give glory to God. Our darkened hearts have been given light. Our lost souls have been redeemed. Slaves have been set free. God's wondrous grace to me has been made known, unworthy as I am. Christ in love redeemed me for His own. Let's pray together. Almighty and most merciful God, graciously grant that your word may be inscribed inwardly on our hearts. And may our hearts and our voice lift up together in one voice to give you all praise and honor and glory. For your salvation has come to your people. We thank you, O God, for the awesome and lavish gifts which you have 
bestowed and superabounded upon us. Cause us, O oh God, to bear fruit of the Spirit, to live holy lives diligently following after you. We pray all this to the honor and praise and glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.